0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Claire Sorrell, and I'm president of the Friends of the Library. wanted to welcome you to Book Sandwiched In. Today, in recognition of National Historic Preservation Month, Kim Trent of Knox Heritage will discuss the book, The Past and Future City, How Historic Preservation is Reviving America's Cities, authored by Stephanie Meeks. Kim Trent has worked in preservation professionally and is a community volunteer and advocate at the local, state, and national level for 23 years, and is a proponent of preservation-based community and economic development. Please welcome Ms. Trent. Thank 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 you all for coming out. And I'm thrilled to see you here today because, as you know, this is a topic that's really close to my heart. And so when um, Emily called to ask me to speak, she said, oh, there's a new book out. And I said, well, I know. I already have it. <laughs> it's from Stephanie Meeks. And so it was a perfect opportunity for us to do this in May, which is National Preservation Month, and talk about our work. And... When I was reading the book, it really felt like it was a journal recording the last 25 years in preservation since I have been involved, because it it really has changed a lot from what it used to be. It started out with wealthy ladies saving Mount Vernon and, and other places that belong to famous individuals or wealthy individuals, and it's changed over time, and I think if I had gotten involved before I did I it wouldn't have interested me <laughs> because for me it's always been so much more about than about the buildings and and it's um a lot of work that I feel very blessed to be in because it's never boring it has great meaning for myself and for the community and you can see your work when you drive around town so that makes it really nice. So reading this book brought up so many things I've learned with my colleagues across the country over the last 25 years, and so I'm really thrilled to share it with you and really proud of Stephanie for writing this book. It's her first book, and I was on the board of the National Trust when she came on as the new CEO and really had her job cut out for her as we were coming into the 21st century and what is preservation going to be after the 50th anniversary of the Historic Preservation Act. So it's been a real time of change since she came along and we're very happy to have her. So I've broken it down by chapters, and I do hope you'll go back and read this book. It has great examples, and the gratifying part when I was reading it was how many things Knoxville has gotten right. Um, so I travel a lot to do speaking and training, and there are so many towns that really haven't quite figured it out yet, um, including my hometown, Mobile, which is like 10 or 15 years behind Knoxville. So I go home and go, gosh you don't have all the pieces. You just hadn't put them together. But I'm happy to say they're getting there, too. So we're lucky as a community to have this. So the first chapter is downtown is for people. And so when I moved here in 1991 and would visit Market Square on a Sunday, there would be just me and my companion <laughs> on Market Square in 1991. There was no one downtown. There were no people downtown. And that was kind of shocking to me coming here because I just thought it was so beautiful and had so much potential And I didn't know at the time things I learned later and things that she talks about in this chapter, especially um, Jane Jacobs, who some people call Queen Jane, and I would be one of those. Um, She was a resident of New York, an architectural critic. She lived in Greenwich Village, and she was one heck of a dame. She lived there during the time of urban renewal when Robert Moses was basically trying to knock down a big portion of New York and put it in highways and bridges and tunnels and everything that urban renewal and modernism was preaching in the late 50s and early 60s. And she just wasn't going to take it. She wasn't going to put up with that nonsense and went on to write a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And it really changed the entire way that people view cities today. I mean, it changed my life. When I read that book, I was like, oh, my gosh, she has put into words all these things I've thought about, but I hadn't been able to articulate the way she has done this and so her work in New York along with people all around the country who were reacting to the massive demolitions that were happening across the country including in Knoxville they just said there must be a better way and a key component of the better way was historic buildings and so it went on till you know 1966 we finally had federal legislation that incorporated historic preservation into planning and law and transportation and all the things that we take for granted today that help our cities and help us maintain the historic buildings that we love so much. And I love this image is because this um, is the 500 block of Gay Street a couple of years ago. it actually was a photo they used in the National Trust's annual report Because they were involved in the work on this block with us, the original plan was to tear down everything on the right side of the screen and put in a large plaza and a movie theater, which was totally a suburban model, not something you should do in an urban Um, environment and so we were able to work with now governor haslam who was mayor at the time and come up with a solution that really followed what jane said (laughs) we try to do what jane says and it created the movie theater and put windowless boxes on the back of the historic buildings and you didn't have a giant vacant plaza which is usually what plazas are they're usually empty spaces in cities and it made more gathering places for people to eat out on the sidewalk, to go to the businesses in those buildings, and it really provided density in that block, and density is a key to great cities, and historic buildings play a really big role in achieving that density. The 100 block of Gay Street a few years back was named a great street by the American Planning Association, and... The reason it's a great street is, you know, the reason that that she named the chapter this, Older, Smaller, Better, Older Buildings Enhance Urban Vitality. We always kind of knew that this happened, or those of us who were interested in preservation, you instinctively knew that historic buildings created more lively spaces. But what Jane Jacobs did, and later on what the National Trust did through their um, Green Lab in Seattle, a program that they designed specifically to quantify this information was to find out yes in historic districts with older buildings have a mix of sizes and ages you see more vitality you have more density than people realize you cannot believe how many people are in the 100 block of gay street they're all in there behind all those windows there are hundreds and hundreds of people in that one block and what it's like you always say jack it's like the densest block in in knox county But it's sort of hidden away. Also, those types of blocks, they've quantified they have more business income per square foot. There's more cell phone activity on blocks like this. There's more um, activity after dark. There are more small businesses. There are more women-owned, minority businesses. There's just, by nature of these buildings, more life that occurs in historic streets and blocks and downtowns. And that's the great thing the National Trust has done in the last few years, is to give us those numbers and track it through GIS and every other method that's out there. So just because we like old things doesn't mean we don't embrace technology. And it's very gratifying for us to know what we thought was true is true. So the next section is on unleashing the power and potential of historic fabric. And I really like this quote. Indeed, the cities across the United States that are really taking off now, attracting businesses, creative innovators, and millennials back to their fold are the ones where mayors, city council members, and other municipals get it. Where historic preservation is already being used as an important planning tool to leverage older buildings toward equitable and sustainable growth. And that's where I think we are so lucky here in Knoxville. I remember... When Mayor Ash started getting more active in historic preservation here, he was on the Board of Advisors for the National Trust, and he decided we were going to do the Miller's Building. I remember the city council race where miraculously everyone running was in favor of preservation. That was a watershed moment. That had never happened before. And then it got incorporated into city departments and city programs. I remember in 1999, we initiated or I helped with the city on that city life program where they actually provided incentives for people to move downtown and for developers to take on those buildings and help them tackle these big projects and that's the part that we've been lucky to have because we went from Mayor Ash to Mayor Haslam to Mayor Harrow and then city council after city council who have understood that this is an incredibly important tool and all we have to do is walk outside (laughs) To see that they are right because just because a town you know has new construction or huge towers it doesn't always improve density it doesn't always improve vitality on the street because i know in large cities where robert moses and architects who were for modernism really wanted those tall towers and those big open plazas with big density you know it was empty around those places and those housing projects that were built on those models were a disaster, which are now being torn down. And it's because they violated the rules for cities with density and a mix of buildings, and you need old buildings and new buildings, and you need kind of run-down buildings too because you need those places where small businesses can find cheap places to locate. And then creative people, we have a whole city, <laughs> creative people with scripts and the publishing companies that are here. And they are really attracted to these places. So I think we were lucky that we got in on the ground floor of this wave that's now sweeping the country. So one part of the book, I like lists. You know, we just put out our Fragile 15 list a few days ago, so I'm big on lists. And I thought that the list that she includes in the book are very helpful to communities that, haven't started this or haven't figured it out but it's also a sort of a checklist of what we have done right and what we can do going forward because all of downtown and the neighborhoods they've gone farther than I even thought it would go. I am amazed with the expansion that's happening outside of the core of downtown and the dreams that are coming from people who came after the first dreamers who started working here in the early 90s. So the first is to make data-driven decisions, and that is to look at what do people want, how much square footage do we have, what are the resources that we have in place. And we've done that here with our historic resource survey that we have been doing for many years with um, the Planning Commission and that we've gotten better about updating regularly And so data is really important in showing which direction that we want to go, and that includes how much does it cost to restore a building, how many people can we get in there, what sorts of businesses in our community are looking to be in those places, and so data is really important. And then pursue regulatory solutions, not obstacles. That's something I talk about a lot with groups all across the country, and it's sort of a challenge for preservation because we started as a grassroots movement in the late 50s and 60s and into the early 70s leading up to the bicentennial. And you had all the energy of the environmental movement, and it was grassroots. It was passionate. They were trying to save their buildings. Knox Heritage was founded in 74 to save the Bijou. But We had a blessing and a curse. We rallied all these people, and then we kind of sent it all into bureaucracy through historic zoning commissions and Section 106 review and Section 4F, and it became a lot less about the passion and more about the regulation. And so I'm a big proponent that we need to be about how do we say yes? How do we solve the problem? If somebody wants to come and do something with the historic building how do we get them to where they want to go rather than putting up obstacles? Because all that does is cause buildings to be torn down. And I think that we've been really good about that in Knoxville compared to other cities. Um, when I do training um, with preservation commissions across the country, I always cite this episode of This Old House that I watched many years ago, and it was horrified because they had the This Old House guys. I mean, the historic old house guys and a a woman who must have been like nine months and four weeks pregnant who was their project person and they went in front of the Historic Zoning Commission at some town in Massachusetts and by the time the commission was done with her she was in tears and I was horrified for our entire movement (laughs) it's like wow we just put that on national television Did did we really mean to do that and so a lot of my work is about we need to be visionaries and problem solvers and not hall monitors because who liked the hall monitors? Like, only the hall monitors like the hall monitors. (laughs) And so I always tell folks, we need to go lead with the vision and take away the obstacles, and then that helps people understand why you have, you know, design guidelines in a historic district, you know, why you have a downtown design review board, why the tax credits have certain requirements. And so that, to me, I'm on a mission that we're not going to be hall monitors anymore. And ensure that old and new construction are compatible. We've done a pretty good job of that here, and we're going to have to get a lot better at it because we've, we've filled up all our historic buildings downtown. And so it's really important that we have new construction, and even though I love old buildings, I really love architecture. So I love modern architecture, historic architecture. I, I love it, but if it's not rolled out properly in a city... New construction can really damage the work that, especially in Knoxville, that we have done so far. So it's really important that we have a downtown design review board. That we understand that we're all in this little pond together, and everybody who throws their rock in is causing ripples for others. And so we're we're way ahead of a lot of towns by having downtown design review. So where I'm from in Mobile, we have Bienville Square, which is the jewel of our downtown, like Market Square. They have no downtown design review. Somebody just built a horrific hotel right overlooking their square. And so that's what happens when you don't have that compatibility built into the system. And then make streets for people first. You'd think that wasn't a new concept. (laughs) But as we saw in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it became all about moving more cars faster. And all they did was drive out of town. You know, it didn't help cities at all to have these massive road projects because everybody just it was an easier way to get out. And so we've gotten better about that here. We bring in experts on how to talk about walkability know how you line up streets with pedestrian access and cars and how they all share the roads I think we've we've done a really good job of that here and now it's spreading out the corridors every time the city works on a historic corridor we're trying to put people first and invest in Main Street. This is really important because a lot of towns abandoned their main retail thoroughfares and their downtowns and the core of their downtowns. And, again, we're lucky here. I know when I arrived in 91, somebody had already done all the sidewalks on Gay Street. <laughs> they were all bricked and there was lighting and They had done a good job of that. And I know early on there was some pushback when the city was investing in downtown and the surrounding neighborhoods and giving out tax increment financing and pilot incentives. And you had some grousing from the peanut gallery. You know, what are you doing giving all this money away? You know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I think a lot of people didn't realize it's a long-term investment. And if the city had not invested first, I don't know that – David Dewhurst and Lee Birch would have hung around to make their investment, which we're now benefiting from many times over and will for decades to come. And so a city needs to understand that you need to invest in those buildings and the businesses and the developers who want to be there with you and not put blockades up. And then this is one that we work with all the time. A lot of your eyes will glaze over, but the historic tax credits are really important. Knoxville, I think we're second in the state on utilizing historic tax credits af- just after Memphis. And Nashville, they're pitiful. They haven't, they've hardly used them at all, and it shows. Um, so it's a really important thing. And so we do a lot of work with developers as consultants on tax credit projects. And what it does is it allows developers who do income-producing properties You know, commercial space, rentals, to get a 20% tax credit on what they spend to save these historic buildings. And a lot of times we found in these urban cores that were abandoned for a few decades, the buildings are in worse shape. And so you've got a gap. Of deferred maintenance, total neglect, abandonment. And so the historic tax credit is the way to fill that gap at the initial restoration. And the thing we like about it is they have to follow the Secretary of Interior standards for rehabilitation. So it really makes sure that they do it right. So we are working and lobbying at the federal level to make sure that those aren't eliminated during the tax reform process that we might be about to undertake. And then for the last two years, we've been pushing for a state credit, and we're getting close. David Dewhurst said, if you can get a state credit passed, you can retire. Your work care will be done (laughs) because that's the last piece that's missing for the really tough projects to fill in those little gaps. So we work with the National Trust. We work with our statewide. It's a huge issue because there's no other funding, really, for private preservation outside of these tax credits that were put in place in 1986. And then find and support other funding methods. That's something that we look at all the time. And, we're again, we're blessed. We have a mayor who has done a historic preservation fund to the tune of $500,000 a year. My colleagues are so jealous (laughs) when they hear that we have that tool here. And it's been instrumental in, in several buildings. And I know it helped us save the Lloyd Branson House. But there are other methods out there. Some folks have dedicated a portion of their sales tax to preservation projects. Um, There's, as we already have here, tax and increment financing, the payment in lieu of taxes program. But we've got to support those forms of funding because I found, you know, you can have a carrot or a stick. And I really like a carrot (laughs) much better. And we can use it beyond historic preservation. I'm now advocating that we pull out some carrots for affordable housing. In downtown and the surrounding neighborhoods. Yeah, it's gotten too dang expensive. The developers are gonna do what they're gonna do. They're gonna make their profit. That's why they are developers. <laughs> and so other cities have had a great track record of incentivizing them to do the things that you would like to see done. Having so many affordable units in a building, you know, saving a building rather than knocking it down. And the only way we can incentivize that, that is through local government. Um, because that, to me, is is their role to step in and go, here's a community priority and we're going to incentivize you to make this happen. Because otherwise, why would you if, you if it would cause you to lose money? And then try new things. That doesn't sound like a preservation mantra, but, <laughs> but it is. And that's one of the reasons why I find it so interesting in this field because we are having more and more people come to preservation who are innovators? Who are entrepreneurs? Who understand that we need to keep trying all these new methods to do things? I know Kay Gray-Biel and I are working in the Park Ridge neighborhood on expanding their district. You know, it comes down to problem solving. Some people are concerned about paying for a certificate of appropriateness for improvement. So Knox Heritage said, "We'll pay it. We'll we'll pay that fee for you," or you know, "We'll give you a discount at the salvage shop." It's like, how do we? make this work for people and to me that's the most exciting part of the field now it's like everything is up up for grabs let's whatever works let's find something to fix the problem and bring it to the table and the communities that do that are the ones that are the most successful because if you're just you know it's like it's like being humans in life if you just stay in a rut nothing very exciting or useful happens after a while and then BOK was starting small. I know that we did here. I mean, downtown started with a few small initiatives. David, David, I keep talking about David, but he's Mr. Preservation downtown. Um, he pulled into town and found one little building in the 100 block that was cheap and for sale. And he just did one little building. He had no plans to do anything beyond <laughs> that one building. And he figured out how to do it. We started with our housing program just doing one little house in Old North Knoxville on Oklahoma Avenue. And then you figure it out. So we have a tendency. For some reason, I was talking with folks this weekend about that area yesterday, about that dome that was going to be over Market Square for a while. And, and the planetariums and the aquariums and the baseball stadiums and you just feel like you have to do something big and thank god we didn't here i mean we didn't do that and i think that is the key to why our downtown is so successful because everybody down here did a small thing and then the small things became bigger things and we didn't have to have a silver bullet or a giant project that had nothing to do with knoxville so starting small is a great place to start. And then you have more time to and more room to fix it as you go along. And then keep historic properties in active use. I mean, this is the basic <laughs> the basic thing that we're after because I, I talk to people all the time who talk about old buildings and restrictions and what can we do, what can we not do? And it's like we need to do whatever we can do to keep it in use. Things that are not used fall down or burn, like the Jackson Avenue warehouses. And so if, if they're not being used, or Eugenie Williams' house, there's another one for you. Um, if they don't get used, they slowly fall apart. And so that is my goal every day. How do we get somebody to use it? We don't care what the use is, as long as it's legal. Um, but what can we do with this building to make it valuable and useful to the community? Another thing that has changed a lot in preservation um, in the last 50 years is we used to just tell the stories of the rich, white, powerful people. That's what we did. Those are the people that we admired. And we kind of forgot about all the other people who actually did all the work. So that's been a, a wonderful change that has come about in preservation and a phrase that we use a lot is we have to tell the whole story. You know, everybody's history is important. We don't just save mansions. We save shotgun houses. We save parks and and places that people come together and that have meaning for them. And so that's one thing I've loved about the National Trust. They have a program that they do every year, and it's called, you know, it's with National Preservation Month called This Place Matters. And we have people go out all over the country, and they just hold up little signs you know, in front of the little corner store or in front of their grandmother's house or whatever it is. So that to me is the part I get choked up just thinking about it. You know, we we need to save everyone's history. We can't save everything, but it all needs to be on the table. We need to look at what is important to people in every part of our community and work to preserve that to tell their story. Because if we tear these places down, it's really like having amnesia. You can't go back and touch it. You can't see. There's no physical record that it ever happened. And, you know, I always say we tore down James Agee's house. We tore down Nikki Giovanni's house. We tore down the black business district east of downtown. I mean, we've, we have erased a lot of history. And so we have penance to do. We need to make a, a special effort to record and preserve and celebrate the history of people who are marginalized and how we used to do preservation. Uh, This part is challenging for all of us, mitigating the great inversion, the problems of affordability and displacement. This is why my job is never boring. For 25 years, we've been begging people to move back into cities and take up abandoned, vacant houses that were blighting communities. My friends in Detroit, I mean, they have just been in hell. I mean, they had millions of dollars spent just to knock everything over because there weren't enough people to occupy these thousands and thousands of homes that were abandoned. Well, you know, we're like the dog that caught the car now. (laughs) So people are coming back to cities, and they tend to be young and affluent and creative, and I gave birth to a couple of them. I think they're really cool, but they're really changing the economic factors and demographics that are happening in communities all across the country the increases in property values in center city knoxville are astounding you know places that you know a house on you know in a part of town i would have never guessed you know on east 5th avenue is going for two hundred thousand dollars or two hundred fifty thousand dollars i never thought that that could happen, You know, those were always supposed to be our affordable neighborhoods where we all live. But all this, the, the pricing is going up, and it's a matter of supply and demand. And so there are national studies going on that show that there is a massive demographic shift that's happening in the country. So in the 50s, everybody got the heck out of town. All the Greeks moved from Burlington to West Hills. You know, everybody shifted. And the middle class left the city. And went out to the suburbs. And I was raised in the suburbs, you know. And that's why I was always hanging out downtown because I didn't like the suburbs. But now this new generation, they want to be in the city. They want to walk places. They want to bike. They want to be in lively spaces with community where there are third places. It's not work. It's not home. It's a third place, the coffee shop, the brew pub. And they really want that. So we're lucky that we have that in Knoxville. We have a very manageable-sized city But now we have a new challenge as a community. Okay, everybody's coming back, and we don't want to displace everybody who's already there. So how do we handle this? How how do we make sure that we don't just do another flip like we did in the 1950s? And they're calling this whole movement the Great Inversion. And so now preservationists all across the country are having to deal with how do we handle this? Because we've watched the big cities like Seattle and San Francisco and Washington, and it's it's tough. And so we're lucky that we don't have the intensity here that they have in those cities. But if they weren't ready to help protect their historic buildings, they were going to get run over. Nashville is having that happen right now. There's 100 people a day moving to Nashville. They don't have the infrastructure in place They don't have the regulations in place to protect their historic properties in general. They're losing their soul because everybody's loving it to death. They're all moving in. And so here, we're having a conversation now about how do we handle affordability in the historic districts and in downtown. And we've started um, a little group, the Urban Neighborhood Affordability Group, to start talking about what resources do we have now because our problem isn't, trying to get people to move into neighborhoods. It's like, what are we going to do with all the ones who are moving in, and how will we keep the people that have been here on the long haul? And Mayor Rojero, God bless her, has put $2 million into affordable housing fund so that we can start looking at that across all of the historic neighborhoods. That's why we're interested in it, because it's affecting a lot of historic neighborhoods. And now at the federal level, there's talk, you know, eliminating CDBG funding, which is – the heart of making affordable housing in this country so it's a big issue and it's bad bad timing for that so this chapter we've had some experience with this here the greenest buildings preservation climate change and the environment and i always say preservation gets a bad rap they talk about how drafty these old houses are, how expensive it is to heat them, and we need to knock them over and build new ones that meet lead certified standards. And so that has been a challenge to the preservation community. How do we remain relevant? You know, we recycle whole whole buildings. We should get some credit for that, and there are... Innate characteristics about historic buildings that tie directly to sustainability and the environment and climate change. And this is a photograph of a project that we did. Um, We called it the Greenhouse. Not very clever, but we painted it green. And it was LEED Platinum certified by the time we finished with it. But we wanted to show that preservation can go hand in hand with sustainability. And so we went through a process with the city and TVA and Oak Ridge National Labs to make this an example of how you do this with historic houses. And we rewrote the historic district guidelines because we're problem solvers and we try things new so that you can incorporate solar power into the historic districts because that's where we are going. That is going to be something that's going to be required. And so on this house, we did solar, hot water, solar power, It's incredibly insulated. There's not a crack anywhere that's not filled, thanks to Oak Ridge National Lab. 2,300-square-foot house, and the monthly KUB bill is about $50. This was like all the bells and whistles. I mean, this was totally a brand-new old house by the time we finished with it. But a lot of the things that people can do in their old houses are really simple and very cheap. Um, You know, insulate your attic. Storm window over a historic window is just as energy efficient as a very expensive replacement window and your return on investment is five years instead of 35 years. Seal the envelope of the building. Get out there and fill all those cracks where the air is infiltrating your house and sucking all your dollars out the cracks. So there's things that we are doing as a preservation group to show these places can be energy efficient. They can be a part of the solution. And then there's whole studies that have gone on through the Green Lab and others that show that it's more than just how much your KB bill is. Think of the embodied energy in this house of the wood and the brick and everything that was Created and hauled there and built, and energy went into that. And so, my friend Donovan Ripkema, who's a very well known um, economist and studies preservation, basically says when you tear a building down to build a new one, you're basically stealing resources from two generations because you're throwing away what a previous generation did, and then you're having to take even more to rebuild these things. So, we're in a conversation with The folks who do lead certification and the folks who talk about sustainability to go, hey, the picture here is bigger. And so cities like Seattle are rewriting their sustainability codes when it comes to energy and incorporating these factors in because it's more complicated than people originally thought. So the future of the past, livable cities and the future of preservation. We've got a movement going across the country. It's a very, very exciting time to be involved in this. In the book, Stephanie talks about, again, what we talked about earlier, that culture of no has to go away. (laughs) You know, I tell my staff every day you have two jobs. They boil down to two things. You are selling preservation and you are solving problems that's what you do every day and you're not there to say no you're there to find out how to make it happen it's like how do we, how do we make it work what what's the process and i i love solving problems and puzzles and it's just fascinating to me and that's what we have to do as preservationists that we can't be lazy and just go nope sorry that's not in the guidelines I and mean, that doesn't work anymore with what is happening in the country. And if we aren't here to embrace all of these people who are now coming to us through this new generation and baby boomers who are retiring and selling their big houses in the suburbs and moving back into town and moving into condos, we aren't ready and able to help with that transition, then we will be left behind. And then the buildings that we love will no longer be there because there's no one to solve the issues that come from them. Um, this is Stephanie's book, and it's a great manual for people who love cities, you know, and who love old buildings. It, I, I highly, highly recommend it, not not because I'm biased, because I really like her. So now I will take questions, and don't be shy. I've probably heard every outrageous thing you can think of in the last 25 years. Where is Stephanie, from? Where is Stephanie Meeks from? Well, she's in D.C. now, and she lived in Nashville for several years. So she feels a uh, connection to Tennessee, but she also spent a large part of her life in, in Colorado. And she was the president of the Nature Conservancy before she was hired by the National Trust, so we are very lucky to have her at the helm of a national movement.
1: If you could name one of the biggest historic losses in this community and one of the greatest saves, what would they be?
0: Oh, gosh. That's tough. I, I think I would have to say losses since I've been here. We've had horrifying losses. If you go look at photographs of what we tore down, you will it will break your heart. But for me, it was the McClung warehouses. Cause I worked for probably 15 years trying to get something to happen without working with the owner and it was just ridiculous that those were lost that they were the victim of how can I put this this is recorded right um I always say if if it ends up on my desk there there are factors that seem to to fall from all of those things and you have irrational speculation about what something is worth check you have a family or emotional connection you have political um, things that are happening around it, check. And you often will have um, mental, um, psychological issues that are in play, check. So it had the. Whole, I mean, it was a perfect storm. So that one, and it just killed me because that that was just it, right. They would be done now if we had done this differently, and it hadn't gotten picked up as a political football at a time when it was the perfect football for those who picked it up. And I think, um, the greatest save, I think there's two. One is the 500 block of gay street because that was a watershed moment for Knox heritage. Um, we had never had the resources to do much more than react. You know, we didn't know something was going to happen until it showed up in the paper. So what did we have to do, but oppose it, Um, But with this one, we were able to work with Mayor Haslam to come up with a solution that is great from an urban planning standpoint. We were able to use our resources at the National Trust. I don't think people know we managed to get $2 million invested in the project to build the box that the theater is in. So we actually brought a $2 million equity investment to the theater And then we were able to turn around and and help the developers access historic tax credits on the buildings that were there. And it is just, I tell that story all over the country. Because we got the theater that everybody wanted. It's the second highest grossing theater that Regal has in this market, second only to 16 screens at Turkey Creek. The buildings are filled with multiple businesses rather than one business in that same square footage, which is what we would have had if the theater were the only thing sitting on that plot. And you have restaurants and offices. I mean, it is the perfect little block of preservation-based urbanism. And then the other one is South High because I started working on that one. I always joke um, when I was pregnant with my 14-year-old, and they just started construction. And and that one is protected and is going to be saved. So that one, for me personally, it just we are very stubborn. And, and the things that we take care of – They're the worst ones. If there's not a problem, you know, I say if it ain't broke, we don't get to play with it. You know, if it can be done, somebody's going to do it. If it's complicated and political and kind of a mess, that's when we have to move in.
1: I know you've expanded your reach to other counties in Tennessee, and I was just wondering what's going on in some of those places around preservation. Yes,
0: thanks for asking. Yeah, we cover 16 counties. I don't think that most people know that. We kept having people from surrounding counties contact us because we have a regional media market, so they would see what we were doing on television or read it in the paper, and they would call us, and it kills me to not be able to help people, which is also a problem. Um, because there's you can there's just too much to do so we we established the east tennessee preservation alliance we thought it was going to be nine counties alliance it came out of the nine counties one vision process and then we put out the call hey we're starting the nine counties preservation alliance and like 16 counties showed up (laughs) we thought well it's the development district boundaries we'll we'll just go ahead and do that so we basically created a, a model like knox heritage that works in the surrounding counties so we have two reps from each of the counties and they serve on an advisory board and they do technical assistance and an endangered list and an awards list and educational events and um we've done the alexander inn and oak ridge we were the group that helped make that happen in partnership with Department of Energy. Um, we've worked on the Waller Building in downtown Lenore City where it was donated to us by the family. and We got it in the hands of a developer with protections in place. So we we go out to all these little places and then we were talking about trying to deal with the entire block of downtown Morristown. I wish I had, you know, 10 more staff members because we would get out there and do a lot more, but we're active across the region.
1: Mm-hmm. Hi, Kim. I'm Kay Graviel with uh, Historic Zoning, MPC, and um, I've enjoyed working with Kim in the past five years that I've lived here, and I'm one of those regulatory people, but we also (laughs) advocate, MPC does. Um, And I just wanted to make more of a comment. Um, We're working on the Edwood Park City Historic District expansion together, and uh, you raised the issue that we're dealing with now of um, displacement and gentrification concerns that have happened in, uh, on a larger scale in large cities and earlier on in preservation. Is it's, it's happening to a smaller degree now, but it's something we still need to address with our affordable housing policies. So uh, the historic district designation, it's very difficult to separate out whether it's those preferences for living areas versus the historic district designation, the zoning itself, What's making the um, exactly as to what is making the prices go up? So I think the land would be valued even without the historic district designation. um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to lay the blame on the zoning for causing the prices to go up and people not being able to afford it, but it's going to happen anyway. It's happening anyway, Mm -hmm. and I look at the um, historic district designation not so much as. Regulation and restriction, I'll look at it as giving the community a voice as to what they want to see in their community, which they wouldn't otherwise have, and just some guidance to take a step back and look at options for the long-term viability of fixing up their houses. So we are trying to work with flexibility in the guidelines. We've reduced our um, application fees for the certificate of appropriateness. We're trying to listen to what folks are saying, concerns about costs, and attack it from angles, but I don't think we can lay the blame of you know, gentrification at the feet of the zoning designation itself.
0: I agree. Because yes. I helped put the district in place originally in 1996. And you can see there was not a massive movement or increase in prices for gentrification in the last twenty one years. So now you're adding the market forces and that's our conversation. Like these guidelines can help protect your neighborhood because it's coming and the market I would say the market don't care. And so this will be a way to have a say for the community at large and also tell people that folks who move into new neighborhoods, they have deed restrictions they can't wait to sign up for because they know that they help protect them and their investment. And basically the guidelines are the same thing for neighborhoods, except the historic zoning Commission helps them. They don't have to hire a lawyer like the new subdivisions. Right. Okay. Are you giving me the... All right.
1: Indeed, I am. Thank you so much, <laughs> Thank Kim. That you. was a wonderful talk. And uh, thanks to the friends of the library.
0: Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at k n o x l i b dot o-r-g